0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now, hosting this edition of the best of Radio Parallax, Graham Smith. Welcome back to Radio Parallax. Today we're going to be hearing a reading from David Talbot, the founder of Salon.com. He has a new book coming out, The Devil's Chessboard, about Alan Dulles, who is a former CIA director who is infamous for, amongst many things, botching the Bay of Pigs invasion of Cuba. The book is going to be released on October 13th and is currently one of Amazon's 10 best books of the month. Now, we recorded this last spring, and uh, lucky for you, dear listeners, as of today, we are freed from our embargo against playing it. Now, uh, in particular, the book covers uh, a lot of uh, Alan Dulles's role in the assassination of JFK, which is something that I don't know a lot about or the history of the CIA in general. Of course, I have a, I have a lot of opinions about the intelligence agencies, as I'm sure most Americans do, and not particularly good ones. Decades of overthrowing governments across the world to varying degrees of success hasn't really painted them as an organization to be lauded very much. But my biggest pet peeve, I guess you could say, about the CIA is why we keep giving guns to moderates in countries where we are in conflict with their governments, given that it has virtually never worked ever. It's, it's just every, every single time we end up eventually having to fight against our own weapons. Syria being a perfect example, where in that case, we ended up often directly fighting the people we had given the guns to. They didn't even have to, to hand them off to anyone else. Now, this is just my opinion, but what I've never understood is why we having the unarguably most powerful military on the planet, why when we run into one of these situations where there's a conflict that we're trying to stop or control, why we can't just show up with our air force and say, you all need to stop fighting or we're just going to start dropping bombs everywhere. It's, I suppose, more distasteful than allowing them to kill each other, but it has the exact same effect in the end as simply flooding an area with weapons and seems like it might actually have the benefit of potentially working. Of course, that's assuming that stopping the fighting is actually what our goal is, which I'm sure a lot of people will argue isn't what we are trying to do. And in that case, uh, we do a absolutely fantastic job. But again, this isn't really my area of expertise. If only we knew someone with the passion and interest to really illuminate the subject. Hark! Graham, if you need me, I'm here for you. What? What could that be? It's me, Douglas Everett. Doug, where have you been? I'm in an undisclosed location, which I cannot divulge. Well, Doug, while you're here, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about what we're going to be hearing. Yeah, we recorded this, uh, this conversation with David Talbot in, down in San Francisco last, I think, April it was. And there was a get-together of what I guess you'd call investigative journalists, and David was talking about his new book, which is now coming out this, this many months later, and it was our great privilege to be able to record him. reading a chapter from the book, which, um, which I understand is uh, ranked by Amazon as one of their ten best for this month. The particular chapter of the book apparently deals with some um, political machinations that were going on in Italy, When JFK made his last overseas visit during his presidency, but I think a lot of the um, concepts involved in the political skullduggery carries over into some other fields. I I have not read the book, I must admit, but uh, it's a hell of a chapter, and I'm looking forward to reading it. Well, thanks, Doug. If you want to come back after we play it and talk about it some more, well, I'd be grateful. Love to. Without further ado, here's David Talbot.
1: So I'm going to be reading from a book which is titled The Devil's Chessboard. And what it does is to trace the rise of America's secret government from uh, World War II up through the killings of both Kennedys. And the story is told through the career of Alan Dulles. And I also want to note that I could not have done this book without my essential collaborator, Karen Croft, who has worked who has worked with me on uh, all my important projects and some of the less important ones. I should also say that, uh, you know, Karen and I have huge respect for all of you and, and uh, for the deep, in the weeds, grassroots <laughs> digging that you've been doing for low these many years. Our work tends to operate at us at, at the treetop level. We do a lot of interviews because that's our background as journalists. And although with Dulles, the trail has gotten pretty cold in terms of living sources, we were able to uh, really uh, track down some key ones, including Joan Dulles, who's very alert, 90-year-old daughter who lives in Santa Fe where she is a Obama supporter and drives a Prius and is a retired Jungian therapist. And because of her, we we, we hit it off with Joan, and she was kind enough to put us on the phone with Siri Hari Angleton, who, as far as I know, has avoided most inter- interviews uh, over the years. And she lived not far away uh, in a very nice ranch estate. And She was very hostile when I got on the phone, but it turns out she's an old movie freak, and because my father, Lyle Talbot, was an old movie actor, she decided she wanted to see us. So that's the way these things sometimes happen. I was also able to interview Sally Harvey and a number of other children of uh, some of our prominent characters. But I want to say one more thing, which is learned enormously in terms of trying to create a context for, for this book over the years from reading Peter Dale Scott. uh, His understanding of deep politics and the deep state is essential, I think, to understanding the full story here. I hope we're able to position Alan Dulles in that overall sort of structural analysis of American power, which I think is one of the key themes of this book. And so when you're talking about Alan Dulles, as we will, as a key figure in both the assassination and the cover-up of the president, you're really saying the American establishment itself had a deep role in it. That, I think, will be the most controversial element of this book for obvious reasons, but I don't think you can separate Alan Dulles from the crime or the cover-up, and you cannot se- separate Alan Dulles from America's power elite. He was, in many ways, as we say, the chairman of the board of this operation, and the chairman of the board, in many ways, of the establishment itself. Just one more thing to set it up. The excerpt I'm going to read is, on, I think, a little, a little appreciated and a little researched aspect of the story, It took place in the summer of 1963 when President Kennedy made his final overseas trip and stopped over in Rome. I think a lot of the forces that were starting to converge on Kennedy happened to converge that summer when he was in Rome. And with that, I'll jump right in. In summer 1963, President Kennedy flew to Europe for what would be the final overseas trip of his life. Though he had left Washington, the forces of political tumult set loose by his presidency followed him abroad. These forces came swirling together in Rome during JFK's official visit to the ancient imperial capital, where tour guides still pointed out the stone steps on which Julius Caesar's blood was spilled. On the sultry evening of July 1st, Kennedy was feted by Italian president, and forgive me if I bungle some of the Italian names, Antonio Segni at the Quirinale Palace, the official residence of popes, kings, and chiefs of state since the 16th century. At the formal banquet, watched over by the extravagantly uniform Corazieri Honor Guard in their torso-hugging white tunics and gold helmets with flowing horse tails, Senyi paid tribute during his toast to Kennedy's recent peace speech at American University. Kennedy's, quote, dynamic quest for peace, declared Senyi, was a welcome break from, quote, the static era of nuclear deadlock. After Senyi concluded his welcoming remarks, JFK stood up and reiterated his peace message, telling the assembled dignitaries that, quote, war is not inevitable and that an effective end to the arms race would offer greater security than its indefinite continuation, end quote. Kennedy's Italian itinerary, which included an audience with the new pope, Paul VI, and at the Vatican and a tr- side trip to Naples, was the finale to a triumphant European tour that was highlighted by a sentimental stopover in Ireland, land of his ancestors, and his ringing challenge to Soviet tyranny at the Berlin Wall. The crowds in Rome that greeted Kennedy's motorcade were comparatively sparse as the presidential limousine and its police motorcycle squadron made the long and winding trip to the Quirinale along the boulevards and narrow streets of the capital. The eternal city could be blasé when it came to visiting dignitaries, and the summer heat was sweltering. Yet, underneath the city's unruffled exterior ran a shiver of excitement about the visiting American president who cut such a bella figura, particularly in contrast to Italy's aging white-haired leaders. Even La Le Unita, the Italian Communist Party newspaper, appreciatively noted JFK's tall, tan, good looks and his stylish blue-gray suit and purple tie. Even the communists there are into fashion. But as the young American president was taking the spotlight at the Quirinale, dazzling the audience on yet another world stage with his glamour and visionary rhetoric, the forces aligned against him were converging in Rome. Behind the elaborate festivities at the palace that night was an intense politi- Italian political drama, one with international ramifications. Since the mid 1950s, Italy had been hotly debating Apertura a Sinistra, the opening to the left, a political deal that would peel away the Socialist Party from its traditional Communist Party allies and result in a left center coalition with the ruling Christian Democrats. Pietro Nenni, the wily 72-year-old political survivor who headed the Socialist Party, had been diligently trying to maneuver his party away from its alliance with the Italian communists ever since the Soviet invasion of Hungary in 1956. Nenni hoped that with a forward-looking new president in the White House, the United States, which had quietly dominated Italian politics since World War II, would finally give its blessing to the apertura. The Eisenhower administration had flatly opposed the opening to the left, seeing a socialist partnership with the Christian Democrats as a slippery slope that would lead to a communist-dominated government in Rome. Eisenhower officials worried that if socialists were allowed into Italy's government, they would try to steer Rome on a neutral course between Washington and Moscow. The CIA, which had a proprietary sensibility about Italy, dating back to its well-funded, covert campaign to thwart a Communist Party victory in the country's 1948 elections, engaged in its usual schemes, along with its allies in the Italian intelligence services, to block the Apertura. The agency's anti-left strategy in Italy was spearheaded by Jim Angleton, who, with his deep personal roots in the country, had turned Rome into a key Cold War battleground. The Eisenhower administration's resistance to the Apertura was further enforced by Claire Booth Luce, Ike's Ambassador to Rome, who shared the Dulles Brothers, and Angleton's militant anti-communism. It was Arthur Schlesinger who convinced President Kennedy to break with Eisenhower policy and support Italy's opening to the left. My impression is that Nenni has honestly broken with the communists, the White House aide informed Kennedy in a March 1962 memo. Angleton was so furious about the new tilt in favor of Nenni's socialists that he began telling people Schlesinger was a Soviet agent. Meanwhile, former Ambassador Luce lobbied frantically against the Apertura, dashing off a long, somewhat incoherent letter to JFK in February 1963, filled with random observations about the growing threat from the left in Rome. Quote, Italy's pro-West government has had one foot on the Moscow banana peel for 17 years, she observed. If the pro-communist socialists were brought into power, the Italian Communist Party will negotiate Italy's future with the USSR." Luce concluded by warning the president not to fall into a left-wing trap during his visit to Rome, quote, "...in the present climate there is a real possibility you may be very embarrassed by the enthusiastic reception that you will get from the communists." Exclamation. I can see the banners now, Mr. President. Vivo, sick, Kennedy, a Khrushchev. End quote. Frustrated by the stubborn bureaucratic resistance that Kennedy was receiving from within his own government to his shifting policy on Italy, Schlesinger sent the President an angry memo in January 1963. Quote, Lest you think you run the U.S. government, Mr. President, the Italy matter is still under debate, end quote, the White House aide acidly remarked. But President Kennedy eventually ignored the political pushback and embraced Italy's apertura. He became so enamored of the idea of building a strong center-left coalition to anchor Italy's turbulent politics that he arranged for United Auto Worker leaders, Walter and Victor Ruther, to whom he had strong ties, to help fund Nenni's party. JFK's trip to Rome gave him the opportunity to officially anoint the opening to the left. After dinner at the Quirinale, Kennedy used the rest of the evening to quietly communicate his views to the leading Italian political figures gathered at the event. As the president strolled along the gravel paths of the palace garden, with its ornate fountains, tropical palms, and luxuriant flower beds, he was approached by various politicians and officials, including Palmiro Togliatti, the head of Italy's potent Communist Party, with whom he exchanged a few words. When an Italian news photographer snapped a shot of the two men in conversation, Kennedy later asked him for the film, concerned about the impact that the photo might have on Italy's fraught political climate. Amazingly, the photographer obliged the American president. That Jack was very convincing. In a far corner of the garden, a low wooden platform bathed in spotlights had been set up for the president to hold private audiences with Italy's dignitaries. The longest conversation that Kennedy held that evening was with the old socialist warrior Nenni. As the two men huddled together on the little stage, their faces nearly touching, they were a study in contrast. Kennedy tall, youthful and glamorous, Nenni diminutive, bespectacled and balding, with wisps of white hair fluttering in the air. But Nenni clearly felt he had found a political soulmate in Kennedy. The previous year, Nenni had tweaked the US foreign policy establishment with an essay in Foreign Affairs, attacking Western imperialism and charging US and European governments with backing, quote, fascist-type dictatorships in the third world. Quote, they have spent hundreds of millions of dollars in shoring up rotten situations, doomed in any case to crumble, wrote Nenni. They have opened doors to communists instead of supporting democratic and socialist forces that would be capable of directing the impulse to freedom of the colonial peoples." End quote. Now Neni was engaged in rapt conversation with an American president who had actually voiced the same sentiments, as a long line of other Italian politicians waited impatiently to speak with Kennedy. When his audience with Kennedy finally came to an end, Nenni was, quote, absolutely enraptured and happy as he could be, according to a U.S. Embassy official who was there. Stepping off the platform, the old man wrapped his arms around his wife and murmured something into her ear. As they walked away, Nenni wiped tears from his eyes. Later, Nenni's wife told a group of American diplomats attending the Coronale event that her husband had, quote, been enchanted by JFK. The socialist leader was convinced that his political dream was about to come true. After years of determined U.S. resistance, Italy's democratic left was at last to become part of the government. JFK, too, thought his trip to Rome was, quote, quote, a considerable success, telling Schlesinger on his return to Washington that he had a good talk with Nenni and adding, quote, so far as I could see, everyone in Italy is for an opening to the left. But Alan Dulles and his old cohorts in the CIA's Rome station did not share the president's enthusiasm for the Italian political developments. And they boldly communicated their dissent to Christian Democratic officials. This is just a reminder, Alan Dulles by now is retired, having been uh, pushed out of office by Kennedy in late 1961. This is 1963. This is a remarkable and until now unreported story one that sheds new light on the growing fissures within the Kennedy administration. A week after JFK flew home from Italy, Alan Dulles showed up in Rome on a mission that brazenly demonstrated once again how he continued to operate as if he were still the top man at the CIA. During his visit, Dulles met with Aldo Moro, a rising star in the Christian Democratic Party who would soon become Italy's prime minister. The meeting was arranged by Dino John Pianzio, the CIA's leading operator in Italy at the time. Pianzio, a skull and bones member at Yale, class of 1950, and a zealous cold warrior, was adamantly opposed to the opening to the left, as was Dulles. But Moro was an advocate of the Apertura, which he had discussed with Kennedy only the previous week during their afternoon stroll through the Quirinale Garden. The CIA wanted to hear what JFK had told Moro, and what the Italian politicians' plans were for pursuing the Apertura deal with the socialists. The secret meeting between Dulles and Moro was held in the office of Sereno Friato, Moro's lawyer and bagman for the Christian Democratic Party. The CDP had been the beneficiary of covert CIA funding since the end of the war. By the early 1960s, the CIA was passing 60 million lira a month to the party, much of it through Friato. Even though Dulles was officially retired, Christian Democratic officials like Friato continued to regard him as, quote, and this is a quote from Friato himself, as a man of the CIA, end quote. During the meeting in Friato's office located on Rome's Corso Trieste, Dulles spoke to Moro as if he were still playing a leading role in U.S. national security affairs. He told Moro that, quote, the communist danger was still the most important issue, end quote. He made it clear that he did not support the opening to the left, but felt forced to accept it. He wanted to know if the socialists could be bought, like the Christian Democrats, and if they were paid, could they be trusted? Friato assured Dulles that the socialists were not a political threat. Their political views, he said, were to the right of Dorotei, a religious-based movement within the Christian Democratic Party. The meeting put the Christian Democrats on notice. Their budding alliance with the Socialists did not enjoy full support in Washington, particularly in the CIA. Afterwards, Morrow, who had received conflicting messages from Dulles and Kennedy within a matter of days, could be forgiven if he were confused about who was actually running the government in Washington. In November 1963, Morrow finally formed a coalition government with the Socialists, despite the less-than-enthusiastic reaction from the Christian Democrats' patrons in the CIA. Socialist leaders hoped that the historic center-left partnership would lead to a new golden age of social progress for Italy, but their dreams were not fulfilled. Even before JFK's assassination on November 22nd, the diehard opponents of the Apertura and the CIA and Italian intelligence services were actively conspiring to sabotage the deal. When William Harvey arrived in Italy in July 1963 to take over the Rome CIA station, the same week Dulles was maneuvering his way around the ancient city's political catacombs, the offensive against democracy in Italy and the United States took a dark turn.
0: We have to take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax and hearing a reading by David Talbot from his new book, The Devil's Chessboard. I'm Graham Smith.